Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is The Crisis of Our Times. The Quest's intentions are to study the crises of the 21st century. I had been aware for many years of the severity of the developing multidimensional crises and began in 2015 a series of lectures, The Quest, which examined a wide spectrum of visionaries in detail. For instance, I was acutely aware of the severity of the economic and financial crises, the seeds of which were being sown from 2008, the credit crunch, to the present. Long ago, I had studied the powerful thinkers of classical political economy in the 19th century, including Thomas Malthus and Karl Marx, who were acutely aware of the great transformational crises inherent in the capitalist system. I was aware of the history of financial and speculative booms and collapses from the tulip mania of the 1630s, the South Sea bubble in the early 1700s, onwards throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th and 21st centuries. I knew the history of financial collapse of 1929, the Great Depression of the 1930s, and the terrible consequences in Europe of the rise of Nazism and the Second World War which were consequent upon this. I'd read, in 1967, Milton Friedman's work on the monetary history of the United States and knew that the money supply was responsible for the great inflations and deflations of the system. I had read von Mises and Friedrich Hayek of the Austrian school, who argued so clearly of the tremendous dangers of hyperinflation, destruction of the price signalling system of the economy, state encroachment over the whole economy, including its financial sector, as the prelude to totalitarianism. Later, I studied Chaim Minsky, who brilliantly demonstrated how financial crises were the great intensifiers of the booms and busts of the economic system. I knew that the capitalist system worked on a periodic process of expansion and contraction and had studied the different cycles of the system. I was able to witness the handling of the 2008-09 crisis and the subsequent policies of the major powers, including China's, and knew that the next, even larger crisis was inevitable. I was very aware that the financial authorities and governments were flying blind, just hoping to survive. I knew also that the theoretical system of economics, as officially taught, ignored most of the above, adopting the false paradigm of neoclassical economics, which teaches a natural equilibrium of the economic system. It is wrapped in denial and illusion. But the crisis was much more than that of the economic system. For me, it was embodied in my psyche. After a very inadequate primary school education, I was sent to a junior seminary to be a Catholic priest. This should have straightened me out. But my identity crisis, which had begun very early in my life, only intensified by this extraordinary experience, although I was, and still am, immensely grateful for the education given to me by the Catholic Church, which I eventually took advantage of, and they began to awaken a love of the immense knowledge that humanity had undertaken. I had also glimpsed the spirit that had been taught me in the Bible, the musical works and services of the Church, the great thinkers of those traditions across the ages, the metaphysics, creation myths, sacraments and doctrines, which, in retrospect, were astonishing, and not least the encouragement to engage in private prayer, contemplation, introspection, retreats of complete silence, self-examination, a search for God within oneself, the teaching that the 
universe was created from love and that the world was naturally good, that mankind had an inherent disposition to mess this all up from the Garden of Eden onwards, that a continual return was required, illustrated in the drama of Yahweh and his chosen people, that the world and its troubles could be saved by the divine within us, the symbol of Jesus in Christianity. Nevertheless, I was not able to follow the path that was offered to me. And it was not St. Paul or St. Augustine who were close to my heart or thought. Admire them, though I did. If anything, it was the figure of Martin Luther who intrigued me, the rebel of the early 1600s, who instigated the Protestant revolution against the Catholic Church. But these ideas of Christianity had entered deeply into me, and I became aware across the years that I was still living them out in different forms, although I thought I was rebelling against them. These ideas are archetypes of the human psyche, searching for light and wholeness, and have existed across the ages at all times. They are built into our psyche. It's what makes us human, and it's what we face now. I had glimpsed in those days, and now have become acutely aware, that the names I have just mentioned, St Paul, St Augustine and Martin Luther, shared a common template. They all passed through tremendous personal crises to a spiritual vision that reorientated their lives. They too had lived in times of great turmoil, civilizational change, existential threat, and had desperately searched for a spiritual vision to reorientate their lives. All three offered, back to humanity, the fruits of their vision, and all three had changed the course of their civilization, if not of humanity. I have come to realise that history is full of such figures. They exist in all ages, people who embody within themselves the crisis of their times, who seek political, social and personal solutions to them, usually in vain, and eventually are propelled into a personal, spiritual crisis of great intensity, from which they emerge reborn with a greater spiritual vision. It's just that, at the great breaking points in history, as occurred in the lives and times of those just mentioned, such figures rise to the heights of the crisis. Cometh the hour, cometh the man, and now cometh the woman. And we will see who or what cometh next in the crisis of our times. So I too, like so many others, embody within myself the splits and traumas, both personal and collective. I too have made deep error, fallen into addictions, obsessions, and ignorance has possessed my psyche, causing great confusion and suffering. I too have felt enveloped by darkness, felt hopelessness and despair, and have longed for the light. The archetype of transformation has gripped and fascinated me. For those who have not been traumatised, damaged or wounded, such psychological and spiritual compulsions appear simply strange and unknown. But those who have will know exactly what I am talking about on the personal level. But what I am saying in this podcast series is that these splits, traumas, confusions, addictions, fissures, crises of identity are now civilizational. Like a plague or virus, they have broken out in the collective, in our economies, financial systems, our family structures, gender relations, social structures, our collective identity. Even the confusion of our sexual orientations, with such intensity 
that they threatened to split us apart. Modern political correctness is an inadequate answer to the depths of these crises. Personal, psychological and spiritual answers are vital, yes, but so too is a spiritual answer to the age we live in, which is undergoing a tremendous identity crisis. It was never a question for me if this enormous set of crises would arrive, but when. I became convinced that the world would change fundamentally and radically in the times immediately ahead. My long study across many disciplines had led me to this view, and moreover, visionary material that erupted within me from 2012 to 15 imprinted this in my consciousness, like a seal on the wax of a letter, for it did come to me as a communication. I was aware that many great thinkers from many disciplines had said this already. Despite all this, I was caught surprised by the coronavirus and the rapidity of events that followed. It was the pandemic emergency that provoked the wake-up call within me that the economic crisis would be detonated immediately, followed by the financial. Please note, the pandemic did not cause this economic crisis. It detonated an already weakened structure about to go into serious contraction anyway. Yes, of course, it intensified the economic contraction, but the virus, to repeat, feeds off the weakness of the host. The climatic crisis, of course, was not going away, but would proceed inexorably. These three crises, the climatic, economic and financial, are far greater, incidentally, than this particular pandemic, which will pass. I anticipated that the spiritual crisis would intensify with the lack of any guiding moral values to the world system, and billions of individuals increasingly will be left with no inner compass in the tumultuous times ahead and would respond to events with confusion, since they are guided by inadequate, partial and sometimes hypocritical morals of political correctness in the West, or the ideologies and religions of hatred and division in other parts of the world. The social crisis would become unbearable, anticipated, with increased violence and breakup of families, genders, racial and class division. Fragmentation of whole political and economic unions would ensue, I argue the European Union would fragment. The willing capture of the human psyche en masse to digital technology would accelerate. There would be increasing alterations to human nature itself as it becomes fused with artificial intelligence. Military crises, already extremely serious, would clearly intensify with immense danger to our species. My wake-up call in March 2020 was that this unfolding series of crises, long in the making, had already passed its tipping point. The House of Cards was already falling. What has happened since then is that most major economies have covered up and disguised the economic and financial crisis by creating vast debt and money creation and pretending this is fine. Pretending the authorities are in charge but they are merely postponing the crisis while it becomes larger. This is like a family whose members fall hopelessly into debt, who become unemployed, have few transferable skills, have no savings, but use their credit cards to continue their lifestyle in the belief that business as normal will resume. This has worked in the past, why not now? 
anything to avoid establishing sound finances with all family members going out to work, even at low wages. Anything but face reality. Indeed, why not have a holiday? Flash the plastic. Yes, we deserve it. We should not have to face austerity. This is like addicts who believe they can continue but manage their addiction. And this metaphor applies to much of the modern economy. Since the podcasts are my only rapid means of communication, I said these things as loudly and clearly as I could. It may surprise you that I don't expect to be heard. I've always known that such knowledge is generally ignored. I do not retreat to my cave and complain that nobody listens. Actually, I try to enjoy life and often do. I understand the world and its fanatical obsessions, addictions, distractions and fears. I understand from years of personal psychotherapy and decades as a practitioner that only deep suffering produces real change. I also understand that there are huge organisational, institutional, governmental, corporational, structural obstacles to change. It's not simply a question of individuals' reluctance. If you were to take the climate crisis as a straightforward example, the corporations, countries and vested economic interests that do not wish to listen to the climate emergency arguments is based upon their economic interests. Clarity has to be earned. It is not a free resource. But I feel called to say all of these so hard to hear things. And the spirit in me says, that is good, speak. And that is more than enough for me. Accordingly, I have said clearly that a great global depression has already begun and that the financial crisis is unfolding in front of us. Actually, its tipping point was in September 2019, before the arrival of the coronavirus, when the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, bailed out the repo markets, which are largely junk bonds. I shall explain this in later podcasts. But yes, the financial crisis actually is underway and is only being disguised by highly dangerous financial practices of governments and central banks. I gave a roadmap in episodes 27 and 30, which outlined the stages of the crisis. The sequence and timing could be different, but all stages will be experienced, in my view. There is a way of somewhat postponing the economic crisis by the creation of vast new money supply, creation of new debt, but they are already at extremely dangerous levels. And by increasing them further, the economy is threatened with hyperinflation, collapses of currencies, withdrawal of investors' money, capital flight, and great instability of the financial markets. Thus, the postponement of the economic crisis can provoke the financial crisis. I described also in episodes 27 and 30 the great fault lines in the world system in the decade leading up to 2020, and have called the different parts of the multi-dimensional crises the ten horsemen of the apocalypse. They can take humanity to the edge of extinction and constitute a great unveiling or revelation. So beyond the economic, health and financial crises, we have a number of dimensions that stretch all the way to the conflict of ideas of our times and the spiritual crisis, besides the ones that are glaringly more obvious, such as the climatic and the military. 
Less obvious is the crisis of our subservience to technology, especially as human nature itself is becoming profoundly altered by this force, one might say this God that we worship. We simply are incapable of resisting it, questioning it, or putting any ethical dimension around it. It is shaping us. We are not in control of it. In the remaining part of this podcast, I wish to continue with the narrative and poetry concerning the Pilgrim's Quest, which formed the last part of the Sower and the Seed, and was my attempt to put into some format the Gnosis experience in the mountains that I've already mentioned. Since these experiences take place on a transcendental plane, they require translation into other languages, music, art, dance, poetry, to find expression, and therefore need myth, metaphor and symbol to represent them. They are beyond ordinary language, but the human psyche is capable of such vision, since it feels in these experiences as if connected to a transcendent source. The pilgrimage and the ascent of the mountain are metaphors of the spiritual journey and the search for vision. In the last episode I described the first three stages. Firstly, the decision to undertake the pilgrimage, which occurs at the midlife crisis. Secondly, the separation that is required for this to occur. Thirdly, the storm at sea and the loss of the captain, who represents the loss of an heroic ego figure that Pilgrim had hoped would see him through this journey. The following three stages, each with its own poem and commentary, will now be told. They are the burial of the captain, the return of spirit, temporarily, and then the fall into the depression. Here they are. The Captain's Burial The captain of the ship, the ego and personality formation, is laid to rest. In the pilgrimage or transformation process, this death is necessary so that the encounter with the deeper self can take place. This poem tells the story of a particular character, the captain, driven by opposites, brilliant but unfulfilled, outwardly confident, capable and charming, but who suffered despair. The old self, with its defences, dies, so that a renewal or rebirth can hopefully take place. This is not only a spiritual journey, but the everyday experience of depth psychology, where the understanding and the bypassing of the ego and its defences are central to the growth of the individual. Defences are part of character formation. The ego not only defends against anxiety, but also obscures the higher self. In declaring itself the captain of the ship, the ego blocks access to the higher realm because it can only see its own reality. The ego and its defences need to be dismantled, symbolically die, so that the deeper or higher self may emerge. The dreams and hopes that dominate this earthly existence die so that a new perception emerges, a different vision, a new person. This is the emergence of the soul. Here we have the poem on the captain's burial. The ship at shadow's anchor lies. Its sails are draped in black. The storm has passed. Life's work is done. He fears no more the rack. No more will see him at the prow. 
bracing winds demonic, no more enjoy his subtle wit, no smile was more ironic. Suffered he a sharp dilemma, shone he like the sun, yet darkness his companion was, his demons drove him on. He would invite you in great style, tobacco he prepared, at first entranced, but then one felt a knot of dark despair. Fierce charmed was his presence, it tempted you to love. His mind was like Prometheus, who stole the fire above. His wit did match Olympians, from him came no repentance. He'd tie you up in smoke rings, defeat you in a sentence. And yet, so like a child was he, at times so innocent. Who could guess beneath his charm he had such discontent? For vexed he was by many doubts, at the deep heart's core. What in fact was his true worth? What was his brilliance for? All his life he sailed the seas. By stars his ship did plot. His wife did scarcely meet him. His children knew him not. He passed his years in search of gold. Adventure he did crave. His dreams were buried with him beneath the ocean wave. The ship at shadow's anchor lies. Its sails are draped in black. The storm has passed, life's work is done, he fears no more the rack. No more driven by his fiends, all is now full done. The time has come, this sun has set, beneath the waves he's gone. Cast into the watery grave all your dreams and songs, renew yourself in fathoms deep, now seek where you belong. The loss of the captain, the hero, who has weathered storm seas blast, is a major blow for the pilgrim. Although he is at first determined to continue the quest, he now stagnates. His spirit is gone. The sails no longer fill with the winds of inspiration. He collapses and feels close to death. The transformation process is painful, and once the ego's defences have been breached, the underlying reality, parts of the psyche which have long been repressed, denied or unacknowledged, now surface. In the case of our pilgrim, this is a meeting with his shadow. However, his spirit returns, and he proceeds on his journey. The human personality consists of many parts. The search for integration, be it in the form of art, literature, architecture, spirit or human relations, testifies to the dissatisfaction with this fragmented state and provides the spiritual and emotional fuel for the journey of individuation or a greater integration of the whole personality. The flow of the pilgrimage, its highs and lows, illustrates the variable parts of human nature. The pilgrim, after the stagnation, isolation and void within himself, is beginning to understand that a new captain of the ship is required. This is the first sign of fresh vision. The new human being, stripped of the old egoic layers of personality, 
reorientating himself to the fundamental goal, the centre for which he searches. The sun and moon, prominent in the illustration in the book, are references to alchemical motifs. They are masculine and feminine symbols. Just as the moon can be seen at dawn or twilight, the masculine solar consciousness at first needs to decline so that the feminine lunar consciousness may emerge. This leads to the alchemical marriage of soul and lunar, consciousness and the unconscious, the different parts of ourselves that seek integration in the new centre. Here we have the poem on The Spirit is the Only Force. Three long days and three long nights, the boat lay still, becalmed. The sails slacked low upon their rig, as by a devil charmed. The sea was like a level glass, the heat hard stifled breath. Fresh water gone, the pilgrim prayed, since he was close to death. The spirit is the only force, the wind within the sail. Without a muse I have no course, my inspiration fails. For all at once I am adrift, no compass I possess. My throat is dry, my soul is lost, no words can I express. But then she comes like summer's breeze, so sweet the senses swoon. She moves my heart, she gives me strength, her emblem is the moon. The anchor's raised, the sails do stretch, the bark flows sweetly on. Pilgrims at the prow once more, at rising of the sun. And finally for today, the dark night of the soul. The mythical island is the deep self where the drama of transformation is enacted. Here, the old support system no longer functions. That which previously seemed important is no longer. One confronts different parts of one's personality. The painful, repressed and unacknowledged sides of oneself emerge and the mechanisms used to avoid them, for example, denial, repression or projection, are no longer possible. With their energy exhausted, the darkness within the personality is encountered. For the pilgrim, the ascent to the transformational heights now seems formidable and full of danger. He falls into doubt. The underlying shadow within and his despair emerge. Victim psychology overtakes him. The moment of truth arrives. He is forced to look square at himself and his own shadow. In the spiritual journey, and indeed that of psychotherapy, the meeting with one's shadow is decisive. No progress can be made unless it is recognised. It is very common for the shadow to be projected onto others. Its deep acknowledgement is an inner condition for the transformational energies to emerge. The poem shows an especially severe emotional condition. Self-destructive internal forces persecute the pilgrim and are tearing him apart. Such an affliction is associated with early childhood disturbance where abusive and traumatic conditions 
have been internalised in the helpless child and subsequently turn into self-persecution. Deep structural splits and divisions in the psyche require healing and are a great impulse for the transformational journey. Spiritual or religious groups that ignore this darkness and suffering within the individual can only provide superficial or defensive relief. The poem tells the story of the search of the pilgrim and his meeting with the difficulties of the ascent to an integrated and higher self. At this stage, he is like a climber who has undergone great difficulty to reach his goal, has climbed a certain portion of the mountain and now faces the huge challenge of the summit. He falls into exhaustion, hopelessness and even despair in every part of his being, body, mind and soul. The pilgrim now hears inner voices, counselling caution and the abandonment of the highest task. He at first falls into self-pity, resentment and anger, believing he has been mistreated all his life. He then faces the moment of truth and realises he is responsible for all his own darkness. But can he face it? Can this dark vision be integrated? Those of you who follow these podcasts will recognise the close similarity to my experience in the Atlas Mountains. There now follows a poem on the dark night of the soul. Pilgrim lands upon the isle. The world is far behind. His life is left below him. His soul he needs to find. Renounced are his possessions. His money now means naught. He has the status of the wind. He seeks what can't be bought. In foothills of the mountains, the pilgrim spends the night. But shades of doubt assail him. He fears he cannot fight. This pilgrimage is madness. Do not risk the heights. The voice of caution grips him. Here, you'll lose your life. This mountain is too high for you. Climb it, you might die. Spare yourself the torture. This cup can pass you by. Just contemplate the vista. It's all within your mind. Make peace with resignation. Stay safe. Remain behind. Slow through the midnight, dark and long. Despair the pilgrim gripped. He cursed his life and its pretense. With devil wrote a script. He thought of life's betrayals and loves that had been lost. He ate the dust of dark despair. He counted out the cost of all that had been sacrificed and what he had believed. How much he was a victim, so often being deceived. But now the devil showed him by whom he was betrayed, and who it was that most abused, of whom was he afraid. The source of all this darkness, within yourself it lies. Look deep into the mirror, yourself now recognise. (laughs) 